Um, if you would, open up your Bibles to Isaiah 53. Uh, technically, we will be starting in Isaiah 52, verse 13. I think one of the big challenges for me tonight is going to be to make sure my scripture stays open to Isaiah 53. Um, uh, if you've never come to RUF, welcome here at RUF. We believe that the Bible is God's Word, and so each week uh, we gather for the large group preaching of God's Word where we hear uh, the Lord speak to us through His Word. And we also have small groups throughout the week where we gather to, to do some small group teaching and then also to discuss what we're learning. And uh, this semester what we've been doing is we've been going through uh, seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. And the big goal has been this, to show that there's been one story all throughout the Old and the New Testament. And uh, what we see is that actually the more we understand this, the more we realize that we are actually... Uh, in between the time of the book of Revelation and the, uh, the last uh, uh, letter written. Um, and we are indeed living in light of this great gospel story. So, Isaiah 52, verse 13, all the way through the end of chapter 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and He carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to His own way. And the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people... And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, 
and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. God's people said, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're asking this night that you would help us to have ears to hear your word proclaimed. And Father, I'm asking that anyone who comes even within earshot of this, that they might come alive to see your glory and majesty in Jesus Christ and what he has done for wretched sinners. And Father, we know that salvation comes through hearing the word proclaimed. So we're asking that you would help us to hear and that you would sanctify us, that you would make us more like him and that you would help us to repent of our of our sins and of the ways in which we reject the gospel or try to add on to it. And so Lord, make this a great night and may you be glorified. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. There's a quote by one theologian by the name of uh, J. Gresham Machen. And uh, he says this, J. Gresham Machen was a, ni- uh, excuse me, was a 20th century theologian. He says this, What I need first of all is not exhortation, but a gospel. Not directions for saving myself, but knowledge of how God has saved me. Have you any good news? That is the question I ask of you. I know your exhortations will not help me, but if there has been anything done to save me, will you not tell me of those facts? You see, what J. Gresham Machen was was battling against in uh, the early 20th century, he was battling against the church rejecting the gospel and turning good news into good advice. It had turned from being good news about Jesus Christ and how He saves us by grace alone. And it had turned into... Here's some steps where you can have a happy and comfortable life. But see, good advice is not good news. And even today, our generation is very much still the same way. We love to take good news and turn it into good advice because essentially good advice makes us think this. As long as we can be true to this good advice and live up to this good advice, then we'll be enough. See, all of us here have been trying to be enough ever since you stepped foot on this campus, merely trying to get into OSU or to get the grades or keep up the grades or to get that boyfriend or that girlfriend or to keep that boyfriend or that girlfriend or that internship or money or whatever it is. Every single one of you have always been trying to be enough. But here's the truth. You will never be enough. Welcome to the club. You'll never be enough. And what the gospel says is that because you're not enough, there's good news for you because there is one person who is. That's Jesus Christ. And what this text in Isaiah shows us, this is not good advice, it's good news. Because this is about the suffering servant who will bring salvation to God's people. Matter of fact, if you keep your Bibles open, uh, because I'm constantly going to be telling you to look back at these verses, and actually in chapter 52, verses 1 through 12, what God has been saying through the, His prophet Isaiah, and this is about 700 years before Jesus came to earth. 
And what God's been telling His people, He says, look, I'm going to bring salvation uh, for my people. And now in this section of Scripture that we just read, now God's going to say, here's how I'm going to do it. And He's going to do so through His suffering servant. And look back at verse 13 of chapter 52. We need to ask the question, who is this suffering servant? Verse 13 says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Obviously, right there, he's a servant. In other words, this is someone who lives to serve someone in higher authority. He's also human. You actually see that in verse 14. It says, His appearance was so marred beyond that of human resemblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. I'm going to talk about what that means a little bit later. But it is already telling us that this servant is like us. He's human. We see that in verses 2 through 3 of chapter 53 as well, where it says, For he grew up like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So this servant, this someone who's going to work out God's salvation, he's human. He's also righteous. You see this in verse 9 of chapter 53 where it says, uh, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. It says again in verse 11, uh, that by his knowledge shall the righteous one my servant. In other words, He's a servant. He's human. He's righteous. In other words, he does not have sin. So in other words, there's something different about this guy. There's something different about him that's different from us. But here's the key where it begins to make sense. Go back to chapter 52, verse 13. It says he shall be high and lifted up. Here's what's interesting about that. Is that those adjectives, high and lifted up, high and exalted, They're only used to describe God and this servant. Matter of fact, what Isaiah is trying to show you here is that this servant who is human, who is righteous, is also God. You see, there's something about this servant who God is going to use where really it's not just only a human, but they're God and man. That it is God Himself actually in our flesh. And in, in chapter 53 verse 1 it says and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed I love this phrase because when it says the arm of the Lord that same Hebrew word is used in chapter 52 verse 10 where it says the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations to bring about his salvation what does that mean say what here's what it means when it says that the Lord has bared his arm it's almost as if he's rolling up his sleeves to get it done himself in other words, it is, a, it is a personal involvement from God Himself to accomplish that salvation. So who is the suffering servant? The suffering servant is God in our flesh. That's how God's going to save you. In other words, it's kind of like this. If I can give it as a negative example. It's kind of like in the Marvel movies, whenever Thanos gets to a point where he says, fine, I'll do it myself, right? You know... But God's not like Thanos, who's an evil being, but He does look at our lives and He says, look, they're not being righteous, so I'll do it myself. And unlike Thanos, He actually succeeds. And I can just keep that kind of silly illustration, but you see the point. And in John chapter 12, verse 38, John says, 
that this suffering servant is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Maybe you've heard about Jesus. Maybe you've heard about this guy who lived on this earth, a a real man who walked around 2,000 years ago in the the ancient Near East. And nowadays, it, it is so certain that Yes, he was a real man. The question is not if he existed. The question is how are you going to respond to him? Because there's so many eyewitness testimonies to who he was and people who saw these real things. And the question is, how are you going to respond? And what John is saying is that Jesus is God in our flesh. And so here's what we're beginning to see here. Is that the good news of the gospel is that God gives himself for us. It's not God waiting for you to give yourself to Him. God gives Himself for you. That's who the suffering servant is. But what has He done? He's done two things. He came to live amongst us that I just mentioned. And He's come to suffer for us. First, He's come to live amongst us. Look at verses 2 through 3 of chapter 53. For it says, He grew up before Him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. You see, that's what Jesus did. Jesus being the eternal God who has always existed, he took on flesh. He became like you and me in every single way, yet without sin. And he lived the life that you and I could not live. That's what he did. He was perfectly obedient to the Father because you and I were never obedient to the Father. In other words, we have to ask the question, how bad must things be for us if God himself must do it for us? How bad must my heart and your heart be if God himself must do what I can't do, that he must do the job? He's come to live amongst us. He's also come to suffer for us. Look at verse 5. This is really the heart of this section here. Really, let me just read verses 4 through, four through 6. And here's what I want you to see as I read this again. Notice the interchange between him and us. He and ours. Watch this. Surely he has borne our griefs, and he carried out our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, and He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. You see, clearly right there, here's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that God gives Himself for you. Amen? Because you can't do it. God gives himself for you, and that's what Jesus Christ does as the suffering servant. He gives himself as our substitution. You see, in verse 5, it had mentioned how we have transgressions and iniquities. What does that mean? Here's what it means. In verse 5, when it says we have iniquities, it means that we have crooked behavior. It means... That we have lives and hearts that are perverted. Now, you don't really like to hear that. Because a lot of us think that maybe we have some sins, but we're generally good people. But that's not the story of what the Bible says. Y'all hear me say this a lot. The story of the Bible says that you're tore up from the floor up. You really are messed up. You really are sinful. You're more sinful than you can ever imagine. 
in any earthly good deed that you might do, the most loving act you might do to your neighbor, it is so tainted with evil desires and ungodliness. And there is nothing in the sight of God that can look upon you with approval. It's not just the things that you do. It's who you are. You know, sometimes we like to say this. When someone does something, we say, well, that wasn't who they really are. No, here's the thing. That moment just gave them the opportunity to show them who they really are. You and I are filled with sin and iniquity. We have transgression. You see that in verse 5 and again in verse 8. Transgression in the Hebrew means this deliberate, conscious, willful rebellion. In other words, everything in us is doing all it can to run away from God rather than run towards Him. You see, what's interesting is that Romans 1 says that the existence of God, merely looking up at the moon, you know that that has come into existence somehow, some way. And Romans 1 says that the existence of God, His power, His sovereignty, His creativity is clearly known to all people at all times everywhere. Because some of us in here, or some of us out here, I should say, are denying God, calling ourselves atheists or agnostic. But here's the truth, is that you might try to hide it so much that you can't escape it. That's often one of the reasons why you don't like to go to church, you don't like to come to something like this, because you don't want to be reminded that there really is a higher power. See, all of us are living a life contrary to who God is and we're taking our sins and we're trying to keep them close to us. It's like the man in 2005, a man named Marius Ells, who adopted a baby hippo. I don't know how he got the baby hippo. Don't ask me that. But he got a baby hippo. And he was drawing close to this baby hippo and after six years of of getting to know this hippo and raising him up and there's some cool pictures of him riding on the hippo's back. But then one day, the hippo finally grabbed him and drug him down to the river and drowned him. You see, you might be living a life in sin right now and you might think it's really fun going out on the strip and getting hammered in whatever bar of your choice is for that night or sleeping around or even living with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or pursuing whatever sexual orientation you want, it might be partly satisfying you right now. But eventually that sin will kill you. But here's what the love of Jesus is. The love of Jesus, He knows that. That's why He came, amen? He came because He loves you and He knows that it's either him who has to die or you. That's what he does. He gives himself for us. You see that clearly in chapter four, I mean chapter 53, verses four through six. It says that he has borne our griefs. It means he he took our sin sickness upon himself and he took it away. Great story that came out recently about this uh, woman police officer who was had her, had her uh, cop car parked at a certain way to, to, to protect these marathon runners. And as these people are running this marathon and, and, and running past her, her car, she's on the lookout for impending danger. And sure enough, impending danger comes to, comes to them in the form of a drunk driver. And as this drunk driver is driving straight towards the marathon runners, surely to injure several of them, if not kill them, she, in a split second, 
puts her car in drive and, and moves in front of the drunk driver to absorb the blow. You see, that's what Jesus has done for you and me. Is that when God's wrath because of our sins was coming down upon us, Jesus says, wait, I will step in their place so that they might live. I will take what they should take for eternity. I will do this. The hell that they deserve, I'll take it so that they can have my heaven. Amen? That's the gospel. The gospel is that he has borne our sin sickness upon himself on the cross. In verse 4 again, it says he, he carried our sorrows. In other words, he made our sin sickness way down upon his own shoulder. That's actually something that Steve-O read earlier in 1 Peter chapter 2. He carried away the sickness that lied in our heart. You see, in verse 6, it talks about how the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. In other words, the Lord acting as His own priest laid sin upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ so that we might be saved. Verse 7 talks about how He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. And see, you see that in the cross. And actually, you see that before the cross as Jesus Christ does this. Remember, when He goes to be tried before Pilate, And they're making all these accusations against him. You said this. You did this. What does he do? He's silent. He is silent even though they're all false accusations. But then finally when they get to the one where they're really ready to crucify him. And they say, look, you've said you're the king. You've said that you're God. That's the only one he agrees to. Because he's determined to go to the cross. He's determined to go there even though he was innocent. He who knew no sin, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he who knew no sin, he became sin on our behalf. You see, you and I, we cannot be saved unless our sin problem is dealt with. Sin, our sin must be transferred to him. And his righteousness has to be transferred to us. That's the only way. You see, he had to suffer. You see, and because he goes in your place, dear Christian, and this is only for the Christian, only those who believe this, that actually now you are so united to Jesus Christ, you actually cannot think about yourself accurately unless you also think about Jesus. You see, I've mentioned this before. But we love thinking about ourselves. We love these personality tests. We love thinking about all these different things that that show us our strengths. But once again, you cannot think about yourself rightly unless you also think about Jesus. Because your life is hid with Him on high. Jesus had to step in your place and in my place if we are to be saved. And and He suffered the wrath of God upon the cross. And it says in verse 3 that He suffered relationally. Look at verse 3 again in chapter 53. It says he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross. When Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he's not been scared of anything his entire life. He's faced demon-possessed people. He's faced one person who had 2,000 demons alone in him. He's never been scared once, even though his life's been threatened. But finally here in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is scared. 
Because He is looking at the wrath of God to come for your sins and my sins. And when He sees what He's going to have to take on the cross, He begins to sweat blood. And in that moment, He needed His friends most. That's the moment when they all abandoned Him. Some of you know what it's been like to be abandoned maybe even by parents or by families or adopted families or whatever it is. But no one has been abandoned more than Jesus Christ. When He was on the cross, He was rejected by all people, Jews and Gentiles. And when He was on the cross and on His way to the cross, people spat upon Him. And that's what's so, what's so ironic about that. Is that He's the Creator. That you would dare to spit upon the Creator, but that's exactly what people did. They would wag their heads at Him at the cross. He was rejected by all peoples. And even verse 14, we read about how He suffered the wrath of God even physically. Look at this. It says His appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance and His form beyond that of the children of mankind. What does that mean? Here's what, it, here's what it means in the Hebrew. There we go. Let there be light, right? Here we go. Here's what it means in the Hebrew. You're literally supposed to read that and you're supposed to ask this question. Is this person even human anymore? That's how much he's beaten physically. You see, the cross was the most physically torturous way to kill someone back in those days. And what happens to Jesus is that He's not only rejected by all of His friends, but He's whipped upon His back almost to the point of death. He's stripped naked. He is shoved a crown of thorns upon His head that would have blood streaming down His face. And He would be going, He would put on the cross and in that cold uh, season of the year he would be there and his back would be rubbing against that wooden cross for six hours as he merely just tried to take one breath after another. And he literally suffered so much that people would look at the cross and say, wait a second, is that really the Jesus I grew up with? That's what had to happen. But it wasn't just that. He suffered spiritually. That's what made the cross the cross. See that actually in verse 10. You see that it was actually in verse, uh, where is it? In verse 5, it was the, he was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord laid on him the iniquities of us all. Verse 10 says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. You see, Jesus Christ, he didn't just die as an example, Jesus Christ died taking the wrath of God upon himself. That as he's hanging there, and as darkness is darker than this would come across the land at the twelfth hour of the day, in other words, noon. At noontime, that darkness would come over the land, and it would be a sign that God had turned his back on his son, who he enjoyed eternal happiness and love and fellowship with. But on the cross, Jesus Christ goes as a substitute, which means he must be treated as a sinner. And God pours out his wrath upon him. And he pours out the wrath that you and I deserve. And the question is this, why does he stay there? He stays there because he loves you. He stays there because you and I 
never do it. You see, once again, Jesus Christ took our hell to give us his heaven. And what that means, if you're a Christian, it means what Romans 8, 1 says, that there is therefore now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. Amen? You are not enough. You're not. You never will be. But Jesus Christ is. And there's no more condemnation in Him. And because Jesus Christ took the wrath of God, you do not have to. You see, Galatians 3.13 says that He was made to be a curse so that we could have His blessing. There's a story about a man who was trying to develop the antidote uh, for people who were bitten by venomous snakes. And what he would do is that he would take the venom from these snakes and he would little by little inject it into his body and and he would develop, uh, I guess, immunity to it. And what he would do is that then he would take his blood and they would make the antidote for people who could be healed whenever they were bitten by venomous snakes. You see, what Jesus does for you and me, if you're a Christian, if you run to Jesus, his blood covers you. His blood heals you. Because he took the wrath of God so that we won't. It's either Jesus or it's you. Thank goodness. He stepped in our place. You see, the gospel is not good advice. It is good news about what Jesus Christ has done. It is not about what we do. It's about him. The gospel is the good news of God giving himself for us. And it leaves us with one last question. What does it mean for you to be saved? What does it mean for you this very night to be saved? As a matter of fact, I want to address this question to unbelievers and believers. How does the suffering servant save you? You see, if you're an unbeliever, you need to realize this, that Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It even says in in Romans 3.10-12, it says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You might not understand this, but it's true. The worst thing about you and me is our good deeds. Because we have the audacity to think that somehow God should give us something. The worst thing about us is that we would say, God... You owe me this. And if that's you and me, we have no clue who he is and what his standards are. You might compare yourself to other people, but that's not the comparison that will happen on Judgment Day. The Judgment Day is with him. You see, we've sinned. We've fallen short. We have absolutely nothing to offer God. And so what that calls you tonight is this. It calls you to believe in Jesus Christ alone. That's it. It doesn't tell you to to be good enough. It tells you actually to stop being good enough because you never can be. And it tells you to look to the only one who is good enough and merely to take him at his word and say, yes, that's who I'll trust. That's who I will bank my entire life on. As one person says, faith is not merely believing in God. It is believing God. See, even the devil knows that God exists. The devil himself tempted Jesus for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. He knows God exists. But he doesn't take him at his word. And what you're called to do tonight is to believe the word of God. To believe that Jesus Christ is enough for you. 
You see, in verse 11 it says that Jesus, when you believe Him, He will make you to be accounted as righteous. Here's what this means. What this means is this. If you believe Jesus Christ, He takes your sin upon His shoulders and He gives you His righteousness. And now, when you come to Jesus Christ and you believe Him, now God will look at you and treat you like you're Jesus Christ. You'll no longer be held under God's condemnation. The law will no longer be over you. But now, in Jesus Christ, you're free. Now, in Jesus Christ, you have peace with God. It means that now you have a right relationship with God. In other words, dear unbeliever, if you come to Jesus Christ, you do not need to add anything to Him. Let me put it this way. It's not like when you go to the grocery store and you get a box of cookies. And you get the box of cookies and you turn on the back and it says, you have all these ingredients, but you must also provide butter and and, uh, whatever else is in cookies. Y'all correct me after this. You see, it's not add your ingredients to Jesus. It's this. It's Jesus alone because everything comes in Him. It's only Him. Don't add anything. Don't look to anything else. Never your entire life. But look to Him. Because it's only Him who can save you. And dear believer, here's what you need to hear. You have been saved by Jesus Christ alone. And you need to hear this. You are continuing to be saved by Christ alone. It is by grace. It is not by your works. God continues to save us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because here's the thing. It's Jesus who's won your whole salvation. He's not not doing 50% of it and you do the rest. It's all of Him. And what you can trust is this is that since Jesus Christ took God's wrath for you, God's wrath is not over you. Some of you are living in so much anxious fear right now because you're so afraid to mess up. But if God poured out His wrath upon Jesus Christ, it is impossible for Him to also pour out His wrath upon you. Amen? Romans 8.15 says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, your identity is secure in Jesus Christ. You don't have to earn His love. It's there. You don't have to earn His forgiveness. It's there. You don't have to earn whatever blessing it is. It's there in Jesus Christ. Trust that. Live in light of that. Michael Horton says this, I am a Christian not because I think I can walk in Jesus' footsteps, but because He is the only one who can carry me. I am not the gospel. Jesus Christ alone is the gospel. You see, what that reminds us is this, is that if we think that now all of a sudden we have to live the gospel, we've got the gospel wrong because the gospel is good news that's done. It's not good advice. You might live in light of the gospel, but you do not live out the gospel. You see, if you don't think that you need to dive deeper into the gospel if you're a Christian and your faith will only be hurt. If you don't feel like you need to 
to dive more into the grace of God and to study God's grace, then your growth will be hurt. Here's what we need to do all the time daily as Christians. We need to repent of thinking that we need to add our good works to what Jesus has done. Stop looking to your good works. Stop being obsessed with yourself. You're not good enough. Still, even the good works that you begin to do, who is working within you to do those good works? It's Him. Look to Jesus Christ. Stop doing this. Stop saying, well, I'm keeping my standards and everyone else in, you know, out here, they need to do their part. And then we'd really have it together. Then OSU's campus would be one because I'm doing what I need to do in the classroom and in church and all these other places. People need to live up to those standards because I'm doing that. Repent of that. You're not good enough. You'll never be good enough. Jesus Christ is. We need to stop telling others to get together. We need to start telling others to look to Jesus. You see, the gospel, the entirety of our salvation is the fact that God gives Himself for us and that's what we bank on. The entirety of our salvation is grace. See, there was a man who played with Michael Jordan by the name of Stacy King. Stacy King says that he'll always remember this one night as the night when he and Michael Jordan combined for 70 points. Well, Michael Jordan scored 69 of those points. Stacy King scored one. So technically he's true. They combined for 70. But you see what he's saying. He's making a joke. It's all about Michael. You see, here's the thing. You don't even add one point to Jesus Christ. He's got all 70 or however many points it is. He's got all of it. You add nothing. The only thing you're called to do is to look to him and say yes. That's who I will trust. That's who I will hope in. That's what you're called to believe in tonight. That Jesus Christ alone is enough. He's enough for you to be saved. And He's enough for the entirety of your Christian life. Look to Him. That's the Gospel. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, for whoever was around to hear, for the believer and the non-believer, that Your Word would write its truth upon our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that we would see that Jesus Christ really is enough and in Him we have all, all that we need. So help us to see the suffering servant who suffered in our place so that we might be set free. Would you help us to believe that? Would you help us to spread that message here on this campus? We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.